How's it going? It's fixing to be a lot better, man. Welcome to Dazed and Confused 33 and a Third. I'm your host, Jarf, and I'm so excited for this, our penultimate episode of the regular show, although I will say that I have some special things planned for after we wrap Dazed and Confused, but before we get into all that, this week we have a very special guest with us is writer, researcher, and podcaster, Dr. Anna Papard. Welcome, Anna. Hello. Good to be here. I didn't know it was the penultimate episode. That's a lot of pressure. I'm sure that you will come through for (laughs) our listeners. No worries. (laughs) So just to set the stage, this track starts with a slow pan over Julie's 71 Ford Maverick, and it ends with Slater complaining that he never gets shotgun. Mm -hmm. And in between, we get Pink's final confrontation with Coach Conrad. So a conclusion of really the major narrative element of the movie, this will Pink or won't he sign the sobriety pledge. So there's the little makeout session. There's that panning out. And I just wondered... Was there a moment in this track that stood out to you, Anna? Yeah, I mean, a few things. I'm just filled with thoughts about this movie in general, which I'm sure comes up for your guests a lot. I was just mentioning to you right before we started recording that I hadn't seen this movie since I was a teenager. It came out, I would have started high school five years after this movie came out. You know, you can figure out my age from that. But so this movie was like a big deal (laughs) when I was about that age. And yeah, just... (laughs) filled with memories um but yeah i mean i liked the integration of the track in this one because it was clearly coming from the radio of the car because we had some dogs barking and other noises mixed in with it and the sound was mixed down low so you could kind of tell that it was ambient sound rather than rather than Mm -hmm. uh beyond the mise-en-scene or whatever and I liked that element of it it sort of gave you that good nostalgic quality of you know we've all had that We've all had that happen where that song comes on the radio at the right moment and it sets the scene in a really kismet way that, you know, happened when we used to listen to radios, um, which also dates me (laughs) from the era of recording our favorite tracks (laughs) off the radio. But, um, But yeah, I liked that quality of it. And then the hard break between the kind of quiet nostalgia of that and then the scene with with pink and the gang was quite effective too sort of that contrast between these two generations of people was played nicely there and even between you know the sort of darkness of dawn versus the light of day there was some there was some good stuff going on in this sequence yeah i i think that you really have something there about the stark light of day because just before this scene, this whole gang, they were smoking a joint at the 50-yard line, and they were waxing philosophical, and all of a sudden, they're busted by the cops, they're dragged off the field. Well, not dragged off. They're told to get off the field, and then suddenly day breaks, and 
their coach is showing up and mad at them. And so these are consequences playing out. And, and I wondered, did you have any particular reaction to Pink's decision and how he expressed it to the coach? Oh my God, I, I hated him so much. <laughs> like, it's just like, I mean, it's identifiable. You know, we all think our teenage rebellions are so important at that age. But I mean, uh, you, it sort of sets up the... <laughs> The good thing that that movie does where you feel for him because we've been that kind of character before, so many of us, and yet the kind of pointlessness of his protest you also feel as well. You know, like, what is he actually protesting here? Yes, he's protesting the drug thing, which is stupid, you know, whatever. But then in favor of going off with Matthew McConaughey in his car to do what? To be what? to become the creepy pedophile that McConaughey is. It's just like, oh, no. I mean, that's not a that's not To a get Aerosmith future. tickets, it's the number one priority know, of the summer. I know. Right. And, you know, I support that, but it's just sort of like, it's you feel that need to protest, but there's like a directionlessness to the protest, which again, I think makes it very effective because it's good character work. But in terms of, liking him at like my current age and position in life I'm just like oh god <laughs> this freaking guy <laughs> I mean I don't like the coach either like don't get me wrong I'm not on his side but still the the kind of I don't know <laughs> directionless teenage rebellion was both identifiable and painful let me put it that way I think that that is a very fair point and it's a funny way for his character arc to end up because there there's a lot along the way that my guests have said that they really identify with pink in particular when they were trying to place themselves in this narrative and they like the fact that pink is able to relate to different groups mm -hmm. of people and so he can hang out with the different cliques but then his desire to be a rebel does land in this place where it's like, it doesn't really hold water. If you think about, Oh, there aren't any ideals undergirding it. It is just that like, you're telling me I don't, I have to do something. I don't want to do it, which I mean, that that's teenage life right there. So it's entirely valid criticism. And I think, that I also agree that it's good character work because it's just like that. That's high school right there. Yeah, definitely. Let's definitely. Yeah, definitely. So let's switch gears to look at the aesthetics. Were there any fashions that stood out to you either good or bad and not just in this track, but in the film overall? Oh, in the film overall, well, I'll keep my focus on, like, this little scene here because I like some of the preppy fashions. I mean, when they're doing the hazing ritual with the girls and they're all wearing those senior sweaters, I did enjoy some of those mm -hmm. fashions and, you know, cutoffs have a certain nostalgic quality for me as something I wore in my teenagerhood. But um, from this scene in particular, I do like Pink's party clothes, you know, the white bell bottoms and the, like pale purple paisley shirt and i like the way the shirt gets increasingly deconstructed over the course of the night you know at this point it's barely buttoned 
(laughs) And you see his personality coming out there, too. You know, he's got a little bit more rock star flair than some people, right? He's sort of going for a particular Mm -hmm. look. I mean, white pants in any era, even this era when they were a little bit more common, still have a lot of flair to them, both in terms of them being flares and in terms of them having flair. Both things are true. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I liked that quality of it, and I don't know. Thinking about like the women's fashions is so. <laughs> the thing that I always think about when I'm seeing like '70s jeans on on women's bodies is that like things didn't have spandex in them then, and when you're wearing like mm. high rise tight jeans i'm like oh boy those must be so hard to sit on sit down in especially like after a night of drinking when maybe your tummy's not feeling so Mm. good and stuff and i feel i feel pained thinking about wearing those jeans they must not be very comfortable oh my god (laughs) i didn't think about the lack of spandex yeah that's why siobhan needs her friend to Mm -hmm. pull the zipper up with pliers Mm -hmm. yeah ouch it was a different time but but to pink's deconstructed wardrobe i would like to see someone do a time progression Mm -hmm. through the movie like pink 9 p.m you know button almost all the way up and then by the time it's whatever this is 4 a.m just just all the way on button man that shows you've been partying. It does. And we see a little bit of his, you know, you mentioned the way that he appeals to different groups. I mean, there's sort of a nice androgyny to him here, the way his clothes become deconstructed, too. I mean, like the boyishness of like his smooth, narrow chest and his feathered hair. And he's very pretty, this actor at this point in his career. And that really comes across with, you know, <laughs> the shirt almost falling off of his body in this scene. He's He, he looks good in this scene. Let's put it that way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm getting a little bit of love hate now. <laughs> well, I, I feel that way about the movie in general. Like, here's the thing about this movie. I think it's a very good movie. I also think that some of the fan cultishness around this movie, I find unappealing. <laughs> because there's a thing where... Oh, say more about okay, that. Okay, well... I just think that there's a little bit of a of a thing about this movie in terms of like the cultural impact of this movie where people admire the characters in the movie and I'm definitely not in that space. I'm more in the space of this being a movie that's kind of critical of manufactured nostalgia and I like it on that level. But the way people sort of identify with so say mcconaughey's character and think he's a really cool guy i think is maybe missing the point of the movie a little bit so like embracing the nostalgia and kind of living in it a little bit too much and wanting to sort of be in this space because this is a horrifying space you know people are just abusing each other there's cruelty everywhere people are performing these Mm -hmm. hazing rituals with like no rhyme or reason there's no escape from any of it i mean it's horrible i wouldn't want to exist in that space so i feel like i have a little bit of a suspicion for when people buy the nostalgia of this world a little bit too much because i think it's important that the world you know has this nostalgic element that makes you want to buy into it because that's what the characters are experiencing, right? But I think buying into completely to this movie on that level can be a little bit dangerous. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I'm glad that we're coming around to that because that is part of the dilemma 
that made me want to do this podcast in the first place. So I saw this movie probably for the first time in college and, and I always was a fan of it, but when I became interested in breaking it down was when I read the oral history and it talked about how Linklater's intent was to make a movie that, as you said, was critical of nostalgia and was really anti-nostalgia. But then because of the dynamics of the cast and them being young and how much fun they were having and, and having so many people that turned out to be breakout stars, there's this joy that comes through even despite the dark parts of the narrative. So it became one of the biggest nostalgic movies, even though the thematic elements are not things that you would really want to relive, but through all those great characters and the music. And so it is sort of a fun ride, but through dark times. And I just thought it would just be really interesting to kind of go track by track and talk to people and, and look at nostalgia of their own life and, and how they related to it. So I'm, I'm glad that you're calling that out about it because I think that I want to underline what you said that it's, it's fine to watch this movie and enjoy it. But if you're taking Matthew McConaughey's characters quotes and you're putting them on your social media <laughs> profile, then no, you've gone too far. That was not I'm the point. I'm imagining it like on, on a kitchen wall, like as a, as a live, laugh, love. <laughs> right. Like, no, you've gone too far, too far. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I agree that with everything that you're far. saying. I mean, and I don't want to go too hard on the movie because I think the way it plays with those tensions is what makes it a good movie. I mean, people wouldn't be engaging in these hazing rituals if there wasn't a benefit to it, right? I mean, when you see Mitch get paddled and then, like, go and, you know, get to be adopted by the older kids and, you know, go and make out with the girl on the hill, right? That's the reward that he gets for investing in this culture. And I think showing that there are rewards to this and I mean that's the darkness to it too right but I mean you have to show both sides of it to understand why people want to go along with these traditions why they want to be part of these friend groups you know and yeah I mean that is the trap of high school right it's like peer pressure has benefits and it has terrible terrible consequences as well and we see both things playing out here which again is good character work that's what makes this a, this a good movie all right all right all right well since we're talking about peer pressure can you talk a little bit about your own high school experience if you don't mind and say they made a movie about your high school days. What song would play on the soundtrack in your version of this scene? <laughs> I thought about that a lot. And 
I don't like I was weird in high school I was very much like I mean I guess there was like a little bit of pinkness to it because I really didn't want to fit in with any particular group like I was a total jock wanted to play basketball as a career I played all season long like many hours a day for five years uh, and ended up quitting at the university level which is a big big change in my life at that time but I was also like a total nerd and like totally emo and like <laughs> I tweeted right before the podcast that my high school experience was 50% basketball, 50% writing Star Trek fan fiction, and listening to Tom York and Billy Corgan be sad about things. I think <laughs> I think that's a pretty good summary of, of me in high school. Those are the two poles of my personality. But yeah, it had to be either Radiohead or Smashing Pumpkins. So I came up with Perfect by Smashing Pumpkins as, as the 90s Ooh, me nice. equivalent for this scene. Nice one. So in this movie, it almost sounds like if Cynthia was tall and played basketball, then that would have been you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm fine with that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, and since you mentioned that you played basketball until quitting at the collegiate level okay, yeah. i wonder if there were some of the same kind of drama playing out with like your teammates and them saying oh you're letting us down and yeah maybe i'm like forcibly disidentifying with pink because of some of these obvious parallels that are becoming clear to me now <laughs> oh no <laughs> but yeah it, it felt very rebellious when i when i quit sports uh I really competed to try to play at the varsity level. I went on a school tour in New York State, thought about playing for SUNY. Uh, you know, they were going to pay for my room and board and that kind of thing. And I ended up uh, sort of deciding to go to Carleton University in Ottawa, and I was going to play for the team there. I went to the pre-workouts, like, I went to the early practices and stuff, and... I don't really know. Like, looking back, it's so weird because I was so sure about this at the time, and it was such a courageous decision in a lot of ways, but it was sort of a new chapter in my life, and it sort of became clear that the amount of time I'd have to devote to sports was not going to be... Uh, I mean, I said that there were kind of the two poles of my interests in high school, and it sort of became clear I was going to have to choose. You know, if you choose to play sports at the varsity mm. level, it's everything you do. You're not going to be able to, you know, focus on your classes, which was also really important to me. I really wanted to study film. I wasn't going to be able to study film because the film classes were in the evening and so it was basketball practice. So I really had to make a choice. So at the end of one of the practices, I just walked up to the coach and said, like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to come back. And he was just like, what? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't going to make the team anyway, right? And he was like, no, you were going to make the team. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. And then just I just wandered away. That was like the end of the conversation. I was like, that was me at 19. Wow. And then I didn't pick up a basketball again for like almost a decade, which was wild because, again, like for six years prior to that, I'd been playing like minimum three hours a day. So it was actually a really big deal. <laughs> and like, again, like I can see some of the parallels here of that being sort of a pointless rebellion that felt very rebellious at the time. But it did make sense because I did want to study film and I did end up getting a PhD. And now I, I you know, have got grants and get paid to teach film. So I think I made the right decision. But yeah, a big decision in my life at that time. Well, it sounds like you chose the right path for <laughs> you, so. and we are all the better for it. 
But I do also see the parallels. Really, the only thing that is missing is the team asking you to sign a pledge Mm -hmm. that says, I will not write any Star Trek fan fiction. (laughs) I will not listen to the Smashing Pumpkins. If my coach had known about that, they probably would have done that because I... (laughs) Toward the end of my basketball playing career, I would listen to stuff like Radiohead and Smashing Pumpkins, you know, on my Discman, on the way to the game. And I have to say, it would often put me in a contemplative mood that was not the best mood for playing basketball. And that did affect, mm. that it did affect my basketball playing, I have to admit. <laughs> Be a little bit too emo <laughs> to feel like being aggressive. <laughs> Right. Yes. What? What's? What's your? You did so well this season. What's your pump up <laughs> music? What's your secret, Anna? Oh, you know, Karma Police. <laughs> I'd be more like rolling up to the game, like I don't know, like aren't we all losers? What's for, this all aren't for? We all losers for competing at all? I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well. I really appreciate you taking the time to both rewatch the movie and look at it with a critical eye and taking the time to record tonight. I know that you do a lot of interesting work with your research and writing and your podcast, which I'm a huge fan of. So do you want to let folks know a little bit more about what this decision to quit the basketball team eventually led to? (laughs) I can. I can. Can I say one more thing about the song before we get to it? Oh, absolutely. Because we didn't talk about the song too much. And I found it interesting, the specific verse that they chose from the song, because I was looking up the lyrics and they specifically chose this verse where it has the combination of nostalgia and kind of this particular masculine adult fantasy that's quite at odds with where Mitch is in his life because it's the specific line about like coming home to you know your implied wife in the song after like a hard day's work like that's the verse that they choose for the scene of like this very chaste oh, I didn't catch that. Of this very chaste make out between like you know this soon to be you know high school freshman and I found that choice very interesting. I did go and look up what verse it was, and I was like, huh. So kind of like the the dichotomy there of the situation and that specific verse of the song I found interesting. It's sort of like the song functions as a nostalgia for an imagined future in this moment, which, again, very effective use of, of music there to convey a lot of competing meanings and add a lot of depth to the scene. Thank you for calling that out, because... As I've looked track by track, I found that the bit of a song that they use is never an accident. Mm-hmm. They're generally, in addition to things that they might want for like the tempo and editing, there are often lyrical tie-ins to what's happening. So I doubt that that was a mistake. And I think that the line that you noted it goes along with the way that Mitch has been trying on this mm-hmm, identity mm-hmm. of an upperclassman. And he, he suddenly like, he's old enough to get beer and it's no problem. And, and he's in some situations that he finds overwhelming, but he's trying to play it off and play it as cool as possible. So now he's, now he's, you know, 
trying to imagine himself like a grown-up man. Um, so. And it's such a good callback to the yeah. earlier scene when he's buying beer and he basically impersonates the McConaughey character, like, oh, he's working for the city, you know, <laughs> he likes having a little money in his pocket or whatever. And then, yeah, it circles back to this with sort of the fantasy of, again, this sort of ideal adult masculinity that's conveyed in this particular verse of this song. Yeah, it's one of those things that I really enjoy about Wiley Wiggins' performance as Mitch, just that you can tell all along that there is this uncertainty beneath his, mm-hmm. his like, brave face that he's putting on and I think that there's clever writing too with having him as you said just when you're in a situation and you don't know what to do just quote that smooth guy and everything that he said word for word like what does an adult say I don't know but I was talking to a grown-ass adult that shouldn't be hanging out with (laughs) teenagers a couple minutes ago so I'll just say whatever he said so yeah he was a very i really liked his performance in this movie he really captured that in-betweenness that you know in between childhood and teenagerhood really well in that role the only thing and i've said this before is i wish that we got more of a parallel of that with sabrina Mm, yeah because they start off with the parallel where they both go through the hazing they both have a senior who takes them under their wing, but then you don't really get a ton of Sabrina's arc as she's trying to navigate the party and the different social dynamics. And it's just, there's always like a dozen movies within the movie that I wish that I could see. And that is, that is a big Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I could, I could, if I wanted to go on a little bit of rant about that in terms of this being a very uh, masculine experience movie. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, every movie has its own perspective and stuff. But definitely as a girl who attended field parties during this era, <laughs> there were a lot of concerns about those spaces that are not expressed in the context of this movie. Yes. And the only thing that I take as a consolation is that the director Linklater is aware of it. Mm-hmm. One of the series that I plan to do as a bonus track after we wrap this is the before trilogy. And one of the things that he said about wanting to do that was acknowledging that he had just come off Dazed and Confused, which is such a dude focused movie. And he wanted to do more of a balanced romance movie where uh, there you know you hear more of the woman's voice in it and and he collaborated with a woman as a co-writer and then as the series went on then the co-star became a co-writer of the character and so I think that will be interesting to contrast with this, which is like total dudeville. Yeah, yeah, because it definitely would have been nice within the context of this movie to see because it's this in-betweenness again that you're getting here. Like, I mean, there's sort of between generations. This is sort of like between boomers and generation X, like the, the, the kids in this movie. And then there's a lot going on culturally in terms of this being kind of in some ways post second wave feminism in some ways at the height of second wave feminism and the ways that that was affecting how the sexual revolution looked in this era and what people's futures were going to be and what the nature of sexual liberation looked like for women during this era. There was a lot going on in terms of 
birth control and women's rights at this time, and you don't see a lot of that cultural context woven into the into the relationships in this movie. Yeah, yeah, it's there's definitely a missed opportunity. But there. again, not every movie has to be everything. I'm not trying to go too hard on it. Yeah, not every movie can be everything. That's fair too. Well, so I'm so glad that you reminded me to ask you about the song because you had touched on it earlier and you just said that it worked well. And but I didn't know that you had this real nugget to share about it. <laughs> I thought so about it. I had I'm, to think I'm glad about that it. you made us <laughs> circle back to that. Uh, but I in, was busy teeing you up to give yes, your plugs. And that. so uh, now I want to put that back on the tee. Sure. Well, Twitter still exists at the time of this recording, so you can definitely find me. <laughs> definitely find me on Twitter just under my name. I'm boring. Papard underscore Anna. You can also find me at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars. It's Sex Scholars, um, where we do not daily, but every couple of days, we do deep dives into various dynamics and various comic books that we think are worth studying through an academic lens. Myself and Andrew DeMann of Claremont Run fame run that account. We are starting a series of threads on Indigenous comics a couple days from the time of this recording, so look out for that. You can also find me on the podcast Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow, which is an issue-by-issue Read through an analysis of the classic Marvel comic series Excalibur, ran from 1988 to 1998, a full decade. And uh, basically, British X-Men, if you're not aware of the series. We have various guests on, critics, fans, scholars, kind of bringing a, bring a critical scholarly lens to this occasionally transcendent, occasionally less than transcendent comic book. We weather the highs and lows on that podcast. And yeah, you can find that wherever wherever podcasts are found. And you can find us on Twitter too. Gosh, golly, wow. Nice. Yes. And as I said, I'm a fan of Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow. And listeners may remember that one of our previous guests, Mav, all the way back on our track covering Tush, is uh, your co-host, along with Andrew, of that show. He is indeed. He is indeed. We have lots of fun together each and every week. Nice. Well, thanks again for joining, Anna. Fun talking to you, as always. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Not to worry. There's a new fiesta in the making. Join us at the Moon Tower, our Facebook listeners group. Until next time, just keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven. Community-focused. Treasured content.